Welcome to Tech Live. Stephanie Christopher here, CEO of the Executive Connection. We connect leaders with a trusted network of people who help them succeed. I'm really excited, Steph, today about your guest because I've heard little bits and pieces and I think this is going to be a fabulous chat. It's good. I'm excited too. My very special guest is Nigel Stoke, who's the fullback for Stoke City. Oh, no, that's another <laughs> Nigel Stoke. <laughs> we were saying before, if you Google Nigel Stoke, this, this wild larrikin in the UK comes up. In fact, I have a wild larrikin born in the UK but living in Australia for a long time as our very special guest today on Tech Live. Nigel is so many things. Uh, fundamentally, he is someone who is passionate about business. He's passionate about success of business, of business leaders. He's had a history of investing and taking over a number of small and mid-sized businesses. He's on the board of a number of businesses right now, uh, working with family offices, portfolio and financial investments, uh, certainly with his time as chairman of the board on tech. The Executive Connection, which is the host of Tech Live, as well as the board of PWN Private Wealth Network. So, Nigel has much to tell us about today on our topic of leadership. And, Nigel Stoke, welcome to Tech Live. Thanks, Stephanie. A very unusual experience for me to be sitting on this side of the desk. It is. It's a very unusual. <laughs> and I don't know how often we just sit and look at each other, but we're, uh, we're doing well. We're going to start with a really interesting story. Tell us about your boat for Dalis. Oh, now this probably hasn't got much to do with uh, management or careers, but actually it's been, passion. It's been a passion for most of my life. So I grew up um, as a POM in the UK, about as far from the sea as you could. Uh, but my dad was an enthusiast uh, and a sailor. And uh, because we couldn't get anywhere near the sea, um, the only time we ever went on boats was for our summer holidays. So not for us going off to uh, a flash resort or even in the car, we'd go and find a boat and go sailing. So wow. that's where that all came from. On your holidays, where would you be sailing? Uh, it originated sort of on the rivers. So yeah. the River Thames, then the Norfolk Broads, then the South Coast, and then different parts of the South Coast, the Isle of Wight, hmm. um, and then France, um, Holland, Denmark, Mediterranean. And by that time, I was probably 16 or 17 and took off. Right, okay. Interesting. And your own boat for Dalis? Well, there's a story. So I'd owned a couple of boats before um, getting hold of for Dalis. So fast forward to 1994, and that was designated as the 50th year of the Sydney Hobart. So the first Sydney Hobart was in the year as the war was finishing in 1945. Mm. There's enough history around that that people mm. will know. Um, and so the 50th year was 1994. And typically there'd been 50 boats, 40 boats, 30 boats, 100 boats maximum. And this 1994 year, uh, they announced it was going to be a big bonanza and they wanted as many boats to come as they could. And in fact, there were 380 or something starters. Mm. It'll never happen again, but that's what happened. The crew of uh, that was sailing with me uh, at the time in, in my other boat said, well, Nigel, why don't we go on the 50th Sydney Hobart? I said, oh, that's a great idea. We're not going to go in the boat that I then had. And they said, yeah. oh, that's easy. Why don't you go and get another one? <laughs> they, so, they had your measure. So we got yeah. a list of about 40 boats that we thought would qualify historically for what was called the veteran or vintage divisions. Yeah. And the veteran and vintage divisions was for the age of the boat, not the age of the crew. <laughs> I, was, I, I was going to be polite there. Yep. 
Um, so um, I found this boat, Fidelis, in Auckland and uh, flew over there to have a look at it and bought it on the spot and then sailed it back to um, Sydney and we were back in time for that 50th Sydney to Hobart. And by that time, Fidelis was 30 years old. It had been launched in 1964. Uh, the designs came from the 1930s. So mm. the Kiwis had actually stolen the designs because they couldn't afford to buy them. Right. Uh, built the boat in 64 and uh, the boat had then raced in the Sydney Hobart in 1966. Mm-hmm. And it sailed across to Sydney, uh, became the laughing stock of the waterfront in Sydney because they said that boat will never get to Hobart. Yeah. And the outcome was that they won and won by a rather commanding margin of seven over 17 hours, which in its day and still is one of the largest margins ever for a winning yacht. I've seen the boat and heard it described as the wettest ride to Hobart. Yeah, well, people say that, you know, you need a snorkel to kind of... <laughs> It's very through, close to the water, isn't the it? It's, it's improved since then. So uh, so that was 1966, um, yeah. the win. Uh, I bought the boat for the 50th Sydney Hobart race, 1994, and have owned it ever since. And then in, 20, uh, in 2006, it was the 40th anniversary of Fidelis winning, mm-hmm. and no boat had ever done 40 years um, race on race. So we did that in 2006. And then... We're still around and getting older and the boat's still in good shape. So 2016, we take off for what's going to be the 50th anniversary anniversary. of Fidelis winning uh, the Hobart in 1966. So that's the backstory. Fantastic. So 50 years on from from Fidelis' gloriest of glory days, take us back to the Sydney to Hobart 2016. So I was glancing at that logbook that you can see here yeah. and uh, trying to remind myself what it was like. It starts on Boxing Day, 1 o'clock, mm-hmm. off goes the gun. Mm-hmm. We got um, a lot of press ahead of the race and mm. we were on several TV slots and yeah. actually the Channel 7 coverage of the actual race start had a lot of us in it. Mm. So we, we the, the pressure was on a little bit and um, the start of the race is always quite hectic mm. and it's particularly hectic in an old boat that doesn't go around corners very well yeah. <laughs> uh, compared to some of the hot flyers. But we got out through the heads and took off and the weather was uh, particularly favourable for us. So we were stonking off down um, uh, down the coast. And let me just stop you at this point. Tell me about your crew. So there's some important things here which I reflected on before we mm. uh, had the conversation today. Um, there were eight, including me. Mm. Um, all of those had raced together for some years. Um, more than half of those had raced with me for over 20 years. Mm. So we had a group that knew each other very mm. well and uh, we'd been planning this particular race trip for eight or nine months ahead of actually the race day. Mm. So I think um, each person on the crew knew what the team was doing. Mm. Uh, they each knew what their own particular role was and so it actually went like clockwork. So, um, Did you have a younger member of the crew? Um, well, I don't talk about averages very much here, but um, there were um, the youngest was mid-30s. Yeah. There were a couple mid-40s, uh, one mid-50s, um, ex-tech member, and then a few just a little bit older than tenured, that. More tenured, more <laughs> tenured. More experience. So, so was the word you just said stonking down the coast? Well, Is that we what were, you said? Yeah, we were, we were going really very fast for a boat like Fidelis and, mm. uh, and that was just exhilarating. And mm. um, some of that um, 
uh, footage on the um, on the YouTube, yeah. uh, which we'll get to. But uh, some of that footage came actually for that two days going down the coast. Yeah. Mm. So it was a good couple of days. You were making good speed. There's a word that came to mind when you were talking about your crew, and that was trust. Mm. The foundation of any functional or high performing team. The crew always say to me, "So um, skip," they say. Um, What's what's up for the race, you know? So we practiced, did a fair bit of um, preparation before mm. we went. And I said, look, there's three rules here. First rule is you look after yourself. So personal safety is number one. Mm-hmm. Second thing is boat safety. Mm-hmm. And the third thing is we'll get to Hobart as quickly as we can. Nice. So there's nothing about racing to win. It's about doing the very best we can. And we actually had a debate about whether it was more important to keep the boat safe or keep the person safe. And there's a very interesting thing about leadership there that um, you could reflect on whether it's actually more important to keep the boat safe because if you're 200 miles in the middle of Bass Strait, um, you actually do quite want the boat to still be afloat. <laughs> yeah. But I think personal safety actually overrides that. So mm. take care of yourself. Don't do anything silly. Don't do handsprings on the deck where you're going to fall off because actually then you're risking everybody else. Yes. Person first. Lend the boat and then we'll get there as quickly as we can. It's fantastic. And that's kind of the mantra that they had. And mm. that was quite useful then when we got uh, into the second night. Yeah, so aligned around a common purpose. Mm. What happened on the second night? Well, I read the logbook and the, I won't read what's in the logbook because it's not very attractive, but <laughs> um, we were all um, uh, racing through the night. We were doing 14 or 15 knots, which is extremely fast for that boat. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's black. Mm. Um, so it's dark. So we're operating watches or shifts mm. so that some are sleeping and some are up and there's a whole rotation and a program for that. And uh, as always, um, things that go wrong always go wrong at about 2 o'clock in the morning on yeah. a dark night um, and that's exactly what happened. So I'd gone off watch at midnight. I just turned in and about 15 minutes later, young Tom comes to taps me on the shoulder and he says, Skip, we've got a problem. Right. And I thought, well, that's good that it's we. Um, so <laughs> I said, what's happened? He said, oh, we, the boom's cracked and it looks like it's going to break and we think we should take some action. So I'm out of the bunk, as was everybody else, on deck within about three and a half seconds. Yeah. And uh, the first thing was then to take the pressure off um, the boat and take the pressure off the rig uh, because if the boom went, that could seriously... Um, injure anybody on the deck. And remind those of us who aren't sailors, the boom? The mast is the bit that goes vertical. Yep. And the boom's the bit that goes horizontal. That swings around. Well, it sort of <laughs> moves around. You have to yeah. duck under it, don't you? And this yeah. would, the boom would be um, heavy-ish, so two people could probably carry it, but yeah. a bit more. So if that broke and was a wild bit of metal mm. flying around on the deck, um, that would be actually not a good look. So the first and important thing was incredibly urgent to prevent any further damage and make sure that it was safe for mm. people to they'd sort out what was going on. Mm. So um, we just dropped all the sails. We had a spinnaker up, so mm. that's why we were flying along. So we dropped the spinnaker, dropped the main and put up a small um, so-called storm headsaw. Yep. So we went from 15-odd knots surfing down the waves to about four or five knots. Because most of the crew knew then we were okay, the boat was safe, Um, we were extremely disappointed because Mm. we thought we were doing very, Mm. very well. 
And then there were a few things that had to happen. So um, the navigator knew that he had to contact race control, so we're on the HF radio because you're obliged to report in any damage. And they said, are you retiring? So they look around at me and I said, no. (laughs) (laughs) And they all said, yeah, that's great, you know, because we spent eight or nine Hmm. months doing all this and so we're retiring. No. So then we said, well, we need to tidy up what we've got um, and make it safe. By that time it's about two o'clock in the morning, the boat's only ambling along Hmm. and I said to the crew, um, we've done what was urgent. Let's now pause and think about what's important. And so I said, I'm going to turn in and go back to sleep because it's two o'clock in the morning. Um, It would be extremely difficult to do anything constructive in the dark. So um, all get back onto your normal watches, your normal shifts, and all have a think about what we're going to do to fix this boom, which was visual, Mm. looking like a V, you know, Mm. sagging with only a tiny bit of metal holding it all together. And um, so that's what we did. So we, I went in and actually I slept for two and a half, three hours or something or other. And in the meantime, while I was sleeping and I found in life that kind of happens, you come up with a few ideas about what might happen. And um, fortunately on the crew, we had some very good, innovative thinkers and a couple of extremely practical, hands-on mm-hmm. um, guys who could help out. Anyway, we concocted a plan at, day, at daylight because uh, we realised we had a, um, a problem uh, if we could sail there but sail slowly. And we yeah. said we didn't really want to do that. Yeah. So let's see if we can find a way of mending this boom. The boom's made of aluminium and it's broken. Um, so trying to fix that is extremely difficult in the middle of Bass Strait. Mm. We've done 300 miles, so we're kind of halfway there. Yeah. And we told race control and we're kind of moving on. So we came up with a plan. We, th- we realised that in the bottom part of the boat um, there are five large stainless tanks. There's two diesel tanks and three water tanks, but they're held down with um, stainless steel straps, which are a couple of inches in metric measure uh, by about a quarter inch thick, but they're very solid, very strong steel straps, and they run the length of the bottom of the boat. Mm-hmm. So he said if we could get two of those pulled out, we could then maybe... Um, bolt and fix those to the side of this boom and put it all back together again. And I suppose that was partly me thinking that through because I knew where all this stuff was. Yeah. And then some would say, well, fortuitously, we had a battery-powered angle grinder. We had one of the guys who was an experienced uh, metal machinist and we had another guy who was an experienced carpenter. So what we concocted was um, these steel straps. We cut them up so that they were about a metre long and put four of these around the boom. And then we had a few spare ropes, as you do, on the boat. And these ropes, uh, in today's world, are are Kevlar and and those sorts of materials, so they they don't stretch. Mm. So we got about 10 bits of rope um, and some tapes. So we taped it all up to start with, then put these ropes around and put tourniquets on the ropes to try and tighten up the stainless steel straps onto these booms. And we used, um, we couldn't find out what to do the tourniquet or how to make the tourniquet. So we actually used all the spoons in the uh, in the crockery no. locker to <laughs> wind the tourniquets up to get it pretty solid. And then once we got it solid, we were reasonably confident the boom would hold together. Um, but we thought we'd better try and tighten up even more than we could with these tourniquets. So... Um, the guy who was actually a very good carpenter came up with the idea that we get there was a wooden breadboard 
So he got the wooden breadboard and we had a saw and we cut up some long, thin wedges out of the breadboard and then and we had a hammer, so we hammered in these wedges into what were the tunicade ropes. So we then finished up with, if you like, a structured bandage about a metre yeah. long, half a metre either side of the break. So at that stage, about another couple of hours had gone. It's about 7.30 in the morning. And so they all look at me and they say, um, well, Skip, what do you think? I said, well, let's give it a go. So we said, well, we'll hoist the main again, uh, but we'll leave a reef in. And a reef in a main means it's slightly smaller than yeah. full size. Also, if it's slightly smaller, then it will compress the boom and not stretch the boom. So we hoisted the sail, put a reef in, checked the boom, cut up a few more bits of wood that we found to whack a few more wedges in, and we were going again. So we ring race control and say, look, we're back in action and um, we're going to put a spinnaker up and we'll do a slightly different course. Mm. And um, every boat in the Sydney Hobart is tracked every minute of the day online and by race control and by all the other competitors. So everybody knows where everybody else is. And one of the concerns was, uh, particularly for those at home who didn't know what was going on, yeah, is okay. we were ramping along this nice straight line at 15 knots and, and suddenly we stopped of, in yeah, the middle yeah, of the yeah. night. They think, hmm, not so good. We didn't think about them much actually until a bit later. Mm. Uh, but at least the race control and safety people knew what was going on. What a great story. So two things come to mind. One is when I've heard that story before, I always think of Apollo 11 when the guys Mm. are stuck up there and they get into a coffee, you know, a board table and figure out something. I love that. Can I talk about your decision to go back to sleep? And I remember at the time you telling me that one of the crew asked you about it. Yeah. So it seemed to me, and it's quite often happens in life, that um, there are things that are urgent and the things that are important, and they're very rarely the same. That most often you've got to sort out if a major, um, if a problem arises, well, you've got to sort out pretty quickly um, what actually uh, is urgent. Most often it's not. So it was urgent to actually keep people safe because this metal boom flogging around in the middle of the night was actually not a good look. Mm. And actually, if it got seriously damaged and damaged the sails, then we wouldn't be able to make any repairs at all. No, and you just so stuck the there. The urgent issue yeah. there was to keep people safe and get the gear done. And then the important thing, you don't, you sometimes need to think about it mm. and reflect last year with COVID and mm. connect that up. Mm. Uh, when when we decided and you announced that um, your team were all going to work from home, actually, it was an urgent response. Mm. Um, we knew that's exactly mm. what had to happen. There actually was very little choice mm. and it kept everybody safe. Mm. But then the important thing was quite a few days or maybe a few weeks later, how on earth are we going to function? Yeah. And I think that was the same with us. And what I've found in life is that sometimes the obvious solution um, doesn't come straight away. Mm. So if it's not urgent, actually it's important, sometimes it's better to pause and So the delay. reflection. Right. I think that's what a couple of the younger guys said to me afterwards they said you know that was the most incredible decision not Mm. to try and fix it straight away Mm. because we know all the things that were suggested in that first half an hour at two o'clock in the morning were rubbish and you can't say that to your team Mm. uh, because they're all trying to be innovative and helpful and actually none of the um the ideas were really what was going to solve the problem Mm. so what actually emerged was um, a very good exercise in collective thinking and mm. collective discussions. It was quite a debate 
for about three quarters of an hour about yeah how we could do all this mm. before we actually got into action. So the temptation to jump into action, particularly in a situation that is unexpected and has ramifications. Mm. So that temptation, you manage that. Yes. And I really like what you said about at that time the crew weren't really coming up with the idea that you as the leader, mm. you knew that idea wasn't right mm. and how to manage that because that's hard in leadership. I know I can fall into the trap of going, no, 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 that's not it. And that's not actually the best way to get it's the most not, out of your team, is it's it? It's not a good look for the team. No. You know, it's really the coach role, yeah. which is to say, look, there might be a better way or a different way. So why don't we pause here and have a think about it? And actually, yeah. when people get tired, it's rare that they make good decisions. Mm. You know, they sometimes do instinctively. Mm. Um, but if you've got to think and you've got to consider what the options are and then have a sensible debate. So actually, the guy who does uh, the catering on the boat you know, he said as we got up, Skip, do you think we better all have a meal? I said, well, yeah, absolutely. Mm. So there's some coffee being served and mm. some breakfast and the three or four who I knew could be the key to getting this right were in a huddle and thinking about how this works and we're in the middle of Bass Strait mm. and it's still blowing a hooligan. It's still blowing 25 knots, you know, so it's quite fresh. So it's slow down to speed up in a way. Mm. So I've got a question for you about your leadership and I'll get to our own context soon, but having worked very closely with you now for seven years, Mm. sometimes I get the feeling that you know what the answer should be and that you're, and it's not just with me, it's with people around you I see, that you actually are really clear on the answer and you're letting it play out. How real is that a reflection of you as a leader? Um, I think it's something that I've learned and I think it's related also to that urgent and important mm. sort of difference that um, uh, if you want to be a strong leader and a CEO and a strong leader, then actually you can't do it all yourself. So then each of us have a, a different way then of engaging with those around and some of them are the senior team and many aren't. So what I found buying companies was mostly um, that there was extremely poor leadership and management at the top, which is why the companies that I chose to buy were for sale because mostly they were failing Mm. and that's what appealed to me. Mm. And then I found also the next line of management, the senior executives, generally weren't up to the mark either. But then I found the third line of management Mm. were actually fabulous and in every case in the five or six companies I bought – we kept nearly all the middle management and got rid of mm. usually the driver and then many of the seniors because the knowledge was there mm. but but it was around leadership and, and understanding how they could then contribute. And mm. I think that was one of the things that I perhaps picked up and learned and I think I learned that also from corporate life. So kind of um, zigzagging back in my life um, – one of the things that I found out is that careers actually aren't much good planned forward, but careers are very good analytically looking back. Absolutely. My resume makes so much more sense now. <laughs> so, so why am I in Australia? You know, I mean, it's kind yeah. of one, just one of those flukes. So you've got to work mm. on your luck too, but that mm. was lucky. Um, but just thinking then about the corporate world, I didn't realise how much I'd learnt in good corporate life Mm. until a couple of years after I'd left it. And I just realised how well equipped I had become 
in just some basic skills. And some of that was around leadership. So in the days when I was in corporate life, there was time for mentors in mm. the senior echelons of the company. And they never called them mentors. But again, looking back, that's what the roles were. Mm. So um, thinking about that and the style of leadership you have, um, I, I found that it's sometimes better to listen and encourage the debate um, before jumping to the conclusion. Mm. Interesting, really interesting. So we better, um, before we move on, finish the third plan, which was get to Hobart as quickly as we could. Mm. How did that go? Well, we for a couple of hours we um, watched very carefully this mainsail and with only a smallish sail on the front called mm. a Genoa. And then uh, a couple of the crew said... Um, Skip, don't you think we put the spinnaker back up? And I said, well, I can't see why we wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, so by mid-morning, we're back in action and doing 12 and 13 knots with a broken boom, which seemed to be okay, um, a spinnaker, and we're headed for Hobart. And about a very short time after that, um, we had a um, radio skid, which is obligatory mm -hmm. um, three times a day, and on the radio skid, we heard that wild oats had dropped out. And so uh, the navigator came up and he said, uh, with a big smile on his face, he said, you know what, and this is really unkind, but I said, no, tell me. He said, wild oats has dropped out because they've just broken a shackle. <laughs> a shackle bee? Uh, oh, it's like a metal thing that oh, holds like, two bits of rope please, together. Please, please. Yeah. <laughs> so I, said, I said, so what are they doing? He said, oh, they've turned around and gone home. I said, oh, we're not doing that. Um, so let's go to Hobart. And so that's what we did. And, and what were, was it like when you got there? What was it? It was astonishing because we, we arrived late at night, um, 10 o'clock or something, and the press was there, the television cameras were there, wild oats had dropped out, so that was fortunate. But they were expecting us because we were the oldie moldy. Yeah. And um, so um, we had quite a few visitors and family members there. So we had a party on the boat from about 10 o'clock at night till I don't know what hour in the morning. Fantastic. It's mm. it's a great story and I, and when I first heard it, I thought it was about the decisions you made and then on reflection it's about leadership and it's about a high-performing team. Yeah. There's another element to it because I was thinking this morning that we were going to have this conversation and let's move to the next part of our relationship and that story. So I'm CEO of Tech and you're Chairman of the Board. Mm. So we've had this interesting and, and wonderful leadership um, relationship for the last seven years. And I was thinking about when I first started, we both had completed the same psychometric, psychometric assessment. That was the Hogan. Yeah. And we had a debrief on where our differences might be, mm. where the challenge could be. Mm. And it was the first time I'd actually done that assessment and something struck with me and still does about how you are so high mischievous and I'm so low. You're off the I mean, charts. You think we've reversed all that? Well, you? I'm not sure. I, I think yeah. I think mine's increased a little. Yeah, I think so. A bit more relaxed. Yeah. Bit, well, yeah. yeah, and you know, because mischievous to me doesn't mean relaxed, but it's been an in, that. What an interesting thing that two leaders can come with such different styles, mm. and and over time become even better and better at getting the most out of each other. I remember that debate um, with the facilitator mm. uh, because um, that was a really useful conversation. It was, great, too. Wasn't it was it? within a couple of weeks, I think, yeah. of us getting together. And, um, and I remember um, raising the question so, what does this mean uh, 
being mischievous. And if you remember, uh, she said it's mischievous. And I, <laughs> and, uh, and I said, so what is that? And there was one category out of, what, eight or nine yeah. different personality traits. And I thought that's a really unusual concept. Mm. And I think it was around, um, it wasn't, uh, today it might even be called uh, innovation or um, uh, or creativity or um lack of tolerance for the status quo type of stuff. I mean, I think to, in today's world, I'm not sure you'd use those words, but that was their character, that was the, 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 the category that, um, that just blew mine out of the water. For Isn't it reason. interesting because that's an interpretation because mine would, the things that you're saying sit very firmly within me as more. I see it as Mm. poking the bear. I see it more as a situation where there's, you know what, I'm I'm just going to (laughs) really poke here. And and it's just been interesting different styles of leadership, which brings me to where we are now. So after 20 years uh, on the tech board as chairman Mm. and a longer history than that of engagement with tech, Nigel Stoke is stepping down. In June. And for any business, that's a real inflection point for a business. It's something that really needs to be marked. And what I love, you and I have spoken about this, is generational change Mm. for this business, which again is common in so many. And it seems such a good time to have you here, Nigel, on Tech Live, to tell your story of leadership, to celebrate the leadership that you have shown uh, to the whole organisation certainly to the board of tech and to me as a as a young and green ceo of 7 years ago what's the thing that you have learnt in that time over the last 20 years about leadership what's your big takeaway about leadership uh, i think the um the leadership uh, that's shown by a ceo is different to the leadership that might be shown by a frontline team that's yeah. interacting all day with um, customers or, or mm. others. And I think the leadership that's uh, shown at the board level is different again to the CEO. And I think um, boards uh, that I've sat on and sometimes not enjoyed very much tend to get a bit confused about this, mm. about whether they're running the company or mm. the CEO's running the company. I go back to Dan Wurtenberg, actually, um, which is always nice to bring in a tech connection. Yeah. But Dan used to speak on the role of a CEO and he said, there's only three things you need to do. And, of course, the whole room would you know, gasp. And he'd say, you're the chief strategist, the chief team builder, meaning leader, and you're the chief salesman, meaning business developer. So he'd embellish then each of those three things. But he didn't use the word leader so much as mm. team builder. Mm. And I thought that if every CEO thought about those three things and if that's all they did, got the strategy right, if they got the team right and if they were then the business development salesperson, actually you could be a very effective leader. Mm. So I've added a couple of things to that since um, Dan Wurdenberg, and uh, I've never taken him on about it actually because I think there's a couple of other things that you could add to that. And one is the notion actually of being a good leader and that means being sincere, having integrity, mm. um, having the time to listen, um, um, being clear about uh, your communication. So there's some aspects there that aren't necessarily in Dan's simple three things. 
And the other one that's missing also um, from Dan's list, in my opinion, is the grasp of um, the financials mm. and the numbers mm. uh, because it's not just sufficient to be a great strategist or be a great team builder or being a great salesperson. Mm. That's pretty good. Mm. But actually you do need a couple of those other things Don't as well. And I think, well. Yeah, and I think the, the leadership, yeah, know your numbers mm. uh, is part of that financial stuff. Um, and I think that's what makes a great leader. Mm. And I, that learning then about what you do on the board and how the board interacts with the CEO to me has been fascinating to learn and I've been and still learning about how best to do that. Mm. But the chairman leads the board mm. and then the CEO reports to the board. Mm. So it is an unusual and in some cases a unique relationship between the CEO and the chair, but it's the CEO and the board and the chairman leads the board. He doesn't lead the company. Wonderful. That's really interesting. I was having a robust discussion on exactly that yesterday, so interesting to hear your view on it. So as we celebrate 20 years, mm. as we celebrate your survival in the middle of Bass Strait, <laughs> uh, a wonderful story about leadership and getting the most out of the people around you. And for me, Nigel, thank you for being on Tech Live and thank you for your wise counsel and that mischief that's uh, kept it very interesting. And you're not disappearing. However, it's a, a different leadership engagement we will have going forward. But Nigel Stoke, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Stephanie. I shall look forward to the new engagement. Thank you. Discover more about tech at tech.com.au.